this morning we are in our series called Indifference as we look through the book of Malachi together. And we find ourselves this morning in chapter 2, verse 10, and that's where we'll be picking it up this morning. If you've been in my office, you'll realize that I have a bookshelf in there that I have placed many of the wonderful gifts that I have been given over the years as a pastor by different people at different times and so forth. And one of the gifts that I just absolutely love was recently given to me, and I wanted to share it with all of you this morning. A Russian nesting doll (laughs) that just happens to have the image of Vladimir Putin on it that was actually gotten for me in Russia uh, by John and Jenny Petty. I got to give them a shout out because I love this little thing. This little nesting doll, though, there's a lot more to it than just this outer shell, isn't it? Because you open it up, and what do you find? Another one. You open this one up, what do you find? Another one. You open this one up, what do you find? You open this one up, what do you find? And this one went wee, wee, wee all the way home. I cannot tell you how often as Christians we deal with the symptoms of issues rather than the source of issues. And like this nesting doll, sometimes we have to dig deep to get to the source before we can fix the symptom. I don't know if you understand this, but when my daughter started working at Walgreens, she started giving us a little education about some of the pharmaceutical products in which they offer. And I was surprised to discover that many of the medicines that we purchase from Walgreens to help us feel better simply suppress symptoms, but never really deal with the source of the problem. And as a result, we may feel better, but are we actually getting better? Or are we just simply masking the symptoms once again, and yet the source of the problem still be inside. Much of what we see in Malachi is just that. We see symptoms of a deeper problem, a source problem. And this morning, we're going to discover that the marital relationships in Israel at that time were suffering greatly due to the fact of a source problem within the hearts of the individual. Now, it would be easy that if you were a rabbi at that time, and if you were leading the synagogue at that time, and you saw and were concerned about the number of marriages that were ending in divorce, it would be easy to jump in and do a study on reasons for not getting divorced or reasons for allowing the marriage to once again be healthy. But let me ask you a question. If that's only the symptom, you may curtail the divorce, but are you fixing the problem? For example, today, today, two of the largest reasons for divorce amongst people is number one, selfishness within the marriage. And number two, pride within the marriage. 
Now, you may be able to deal with the selfishness and you may be able to deal with the pride and specifically the symptoms that they produce. For example, I'm going to be more uh, in tune to what my spouse wants rather than what I want. And I'm not going to be so quick to stand my ground and my personal uh, principles. I'm going to listen and negotiate through arguments and so forth. But that's not really dealing with the problem, is it? The heart of selfishness is still there. The heart of pride is still there. And as a result, yes, you may deal with the symptom, but you're not getting to the root cause. And so as we see as Israel and Judah are profaning God by uh, divorcing their Jewish wives and then marrying the wives of pagan communities outside of Israel for their prosperity and their personal betterment, in the sense of gaining wealth or places of prominence and power, the real issue at hand is not simply divorce. There's much more going on within the heart and the mind of the individual that God wants to address. And so this morning we will find out that this indifference that the nation of Israel finds themselves in towards God has led to unfaithfulness towards God that has led to compromise with God that has led to hypocrisy as they walked with God and as a result the symptoms of all of that has been found in the divorce of their wives their Jewish wives and their remarriage to pagan wives and this is what God condemns this morning But again, he's not simply dealing with the symptoms. He's dealing with the root causes, the source of the problem. As we find this indifference increasing in the hearts and the minds of the children of Israel due to the fact that things had gotten very difficult. They had been difficult for a very long period of time. They had different expectations towards God. God seems to have let them down concerning those expectations. And as a result, they're growing indifferent to God. They're becoming apathetic. They're becoming lethargic concerning God. Though they're going through the ritual motions, they're going through the religious uh, rites, they have really no heart for the Lord himself. And as a result, that indifference has led them now to unfaithfulness with God. That unfaithfulness has now led them to compromise the word of God. And that compromise has led them to leave, lead lives of hypocrisy. Now again, we could deal with hypocrisy and we could deal with the compromise, but that wouldn't get to the root then of the unfaithfulness that was birthed out of their indifference towards God. So when we deal with sin, let us understand that the root cause is the heart of man. And the heart must be dealt with before the symptoms can be truly rectified. We can change behavior, but that doesn't necessarily mean we change our hearts, does it? And we can't change our hearts. That's a work of the gospel. That's a work of God in our lives. And God this morning will meet us here and show us first and foremost that the nation of Israel, due to their indifference, has led uh, themselves into a position of compromise with the world. 
They know what God says. They know what God requires of them. But they find it more expedient to do what the world would have them to do. There's more pleasure and temporal uh, gratitude and instant gratification in doing what I want to do at this moment rather than being obedient to God in the overall. And so they're compromising. They know what to do, then they're just not doing it. Now, compromise can be good if we are looking to create a consensus amongst individuals for the purpose of moving forward. However, though, when God states us, uh, or tells us something, states to us very clearly in his word something, that is not meant to be compromised. We need to be faithful to what he has asked us to be faithful to. And we can compromise and think that we are going to appease the world by compromising and finding consensus with the world in these areas. But as we do that, we are then missing the boat and we begin to live a life of hypocrisy, right? If we're not going to do what God asks us to do and yet call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, is that not hypocrisy? Hypocrisy in the Bible is found from Genesis to Revelation, especially in the New Testament. And of course, today, many say that they want nothing to do with Christianity or the church due to the hypocrites found within it. That hypocrisy is based on compromise, that they are unwilling to obey the word of God and they capitulate to the world continuously when it comes to areas of disagreement. But hypocrisy and compromise are all derivative of the fact that we are unfaithful in our relationship with God. The children of Israel were under a covenant relationship with God. We are under a covenant relationship with God in Christ. That covenant relationship is paralleled to marriage throughout the Bible. And I think that it is very interesting that this unfaithfulness and compromise and hypocrisy are all being seen in the marriages of the individuals, manifesting itself in the divorce of many. So as a result, the nation of Israel is going through great difficulties. And all of this unfaithfulness and Hypocrisy and compromise is due to the fact that they have grown indifferent to God. Because things are difficult. They thought once they got back into their land, as we have said, God was going to immediately return them to the pinnacle of prosperity, the zenith of their existence under King David. And a hundred years have gone past since they have been regathered in their land and difficulties are still abounding within their lives. And they believe that God has let them down. That God hasn't been faithful to his promises to them. And as a result, they've grown indifferent to God. Well, if he's not going to be faithful, I'm not going to be faithful in my response to him. That was their heart attitude. And that's indifference. That indifference then led them to be unfaithful. Well, if God's not going to keep his promise in this relationship, then why should I continue in my steadfastness in this relationship? And that's led to compromise. And that compromise, looking for consensus with those around them and with the world, has 
diluted their testimony and witness and their light shining in the darkness, and now they have become simply hypocrites to those around them because those around them see them for what they are. You say one thing, but you're doing just the opposite. And so the whole reason for regathering them in their land that they may be a light unto the world has completely missed. And all of this is due to the fact that one sin has led to another. When we compromise and walk in hypocrisy, there are three tragedies that take place in the life of a believer. First and foremost, compromise and hypocrisy weakens the character and the testimony of the Christian. No one is going to take you seriously today unless you truly live what you say you believe. You cannot simply state that I hold or I ascend to a certain uh, standard of morality and yet not live it and anyone take you seriously about it. They're just going to laugh at you. Number two, compromise and hypocrisy means that the truth is not being done or lived within the person's life any longer. And a person is agreeing to do something less than what he should be doing as the Lord has instructed. So you're basically telling people that the Christian life isn't worth living. And number three, compromise weakens principles, positions, and one's own personal life. Because after a while, like the children of Israel, in their indifference and unfaithfulness that led to compromise and hypocrisy, they forgot who they were. They forgot who they were in their relationship or covenant with God. So in verse 10, Malachi reminds them who they are. Look with me in verse 10. Have we not all one Father, he says? And has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The very first thing that Malachi needs to do, that God needs to do with his people, is once again remind them of who they are in him. Before he gets on to any of the correction, he first established that he loved us. We notice that in chapter 1. Now again, before he moves into the second wave of correction, he reminds us of who we are in him. We have to understand that when Paul or John or Peter saw themselves as a Christian in the New Testament, that's who they were. That was their identity. And they lived accordingly. It meant something to them when they said, I am a Christian. It wasn't a social demographic. It wasn't a, uh, a club to be part of. It wasn't a society with secret handshakes. It was something so real, so precious to them that it caused them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow after God. And God says right here from the very beginning, have we not all one Father? And has not that one created us? 
Today, many are looking to discover who they are as a person. The quest for an individual to discover personal identity is at an all-time high in our society today. They don't know who they are any longer. And as a result, there's a void within them that is gaping. And they're trying to fill it, and they're trying to associate with a group that will lend them an identity. And did you ever notice that once an individual associates with some group that lends them an identity, they become so passionate about that group that their whole life is consumed about it because they're not just simply associating themselves with this group, they are finding and deriving their identity from this group. And all of this is because of the fact that we have pushed out the idea of God. No longer are individuals created in the image of God. Now we see them as a mere byproduct of an evolutionary process. And as a result, we have forgotten who we are. I personally believe that if individuals would once again be reminded of the fact that they have been created in the image of God, they would not look to suppress their life or end their life in the pursuit of suicide. In fact, many who commit suicide today do so simply for the fact that they don't know where they belong or exist within our world. And God reminding His people who they are. Have we not all one Father? And he, has He not created us? Now this brings their attention back to the beginning of history. That not only were they created in the image of God, but then God set His mercy and His grace upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and drew out from Egypt a people for Himself that He therefore brought into the promised land that, that He needed to correct and to challenge at times that led them out of the promised land, but then brought them back again to be His special people. And He says, I have done all of this for you. And yet, you have been faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. You have been sexually immoral to the commitment that you have made to me, he says. That's what the profaning means. You have been sexually immoral. Today, we join husband and wife together in matrimony. And if one were to violate that covenant, that commitment, we would call that person an adulterer. It is interesting that in our society, kids were asked, what do you call a person who has an, uh, a relationship outside of marriage? And instead of calling it adultery, now they just simply say it's an affair. If your dad were to have a girlfriend Next to your mother. These are questions, by the way, that were asked third graders in a public school system. If your dad was to have a relationship with a woman who is not your mother and he is not married to, what would you call that woman? And most of them said mistress. Again, the whole idea of marriage has collapsed to this uh, simple uh, legal uh, binding agreement rather than a sacred covenant before God. 
And throughout the Old Testament, God said to his people, each and every time that you go and you worship these pagan gods and you raise up altars for them within the land of Israel, you are committing adultery against the relationship that I have with you. And I am a jealous God, he says. They have profaned the covenant of God. They have forgotten who they were. These people were meant to be set apart. They were meant to be a light unto the world. They were meant to be a beacon of hope in a world that was dying in, des in despair. And yet, because of the indifference that led to unfaithfulness, that led to compromise, that led to hypocrisy, they now are profaning the very covenant. They are cheating on God. The Old Testament prophet Hosea, very interesting book. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to do so. But sometimes God had the prophets do some very ex extraordinary things to get the people's attention, to help them understand what was actually happening in their own heart and mind. And so Hosea was instructed to marry and wed a prostitute, knowing that she would not be faithful to him. And as a result... The people were to see the relationship between Hosea and this woman and know that they had been unfaithful unto God. And yet it still did not gather their attention enough to bring them to repentance. So in verse 11, he now lays out the sins of the people in the wake of their indifference, the first and foremost, the sin that he addresses is the sin of compromise, verse 11 through 15. Let's read it together. Now Judah has been faithless, and abominations have been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do is that you cover the Lord's altars with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from you. But you say... Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was one, excuse me, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. First, in 11 and 12, we see the sin of compromise. Notice that Judah had been faithless, and Israel has committed abominations unto God due to the fact that they were divorcing their Jewish wives, and they were marrying the wives of the, or the women of nations around Israel who did not worship God. They would be considered pagan nations. And they were doing so for personal wealth, 
They were doing so to make compromises with the nations around them to better their trade relationships and so forth. <clears throat> For at that time, Israel was having a very difficult time with their neighbors, and many of the Jewish men saw that this was a way to overcome those difficulties by marrying into those families and therefore creating relationships and alliances accordingly. And God says, what are you doing? You were supposed to be separate. You were supposed to be set apart for my name's sake. And yet they have compromised. And the Lord said, let a man such as this be cut off. It is a strong term. Exiled from the nation of Israel. He did not want their corruption to further corrupt the uh, others within the nation. So let them be cut off from us anyone who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And even though they were disobeying God in such regards, they were still worshiping God. They were still going through the motions. They were still you know, offering their sacrifices unto the Lord and so forth. And yet their hearts were so far from them. And as a result, this compromise leveled their faithfulness and led them to the sin of hypocrisy. And again, in the nation of Israel, Exodus 34, 11 through 16, where God says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. <coughs> Excuse me, lest it becomes a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their uh, asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters who are after their gods and make your sons who are after their gods. Or in Deuteronomy, he makes it so clear. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. God was trying to set a people apart and in their devotion to him, he was looking for their obedience to him and marrying within themselves that they may have the same standard or the same worldview going farther. And as a result, each and every time the children of Israel intermarried with the nations around them. This isn't a racial thing, and don't demean it as such. This was an issue of devotion. And God was saying that he wanted his people devoted to them, to him, I should say. And he knew that if they were to intermarry, and which they did, and each and every time it occurred, they that it is his people went after other gods to discover that those gods were false, 
that those gods had no ability to lead and to guide them, to heal them, to watch over them and to provide for them, to protect them from their enemies. For God says very clearly that there is no other God but I. And he saw his relationship with the people of Israel as a marriage. And when they went after these other gods, he saw that as an act of adultery. He says, I have been faithful to you. I have loved you. I have kept my promises to you each and every step of the way. And yet the moment you get the opportunity, you turn from me and you go and you bed yourself with another. And God even pleads with his people in the Old Testament. He says, what have I done to deserve this type of uh, interaction and he says, he then goes on in places and lists, I have provided for you. I have loved you. I have, I have defended you against your enemies. I have led you out of the land of Egypt. What have I done to warrant this adulterous act? And each and every time the children of Israel could say nothing except for the fact that they wanted something else. That the problem lie within them. And so reminding them of their identity, reminding them of the goodness of God and all that he has done for them, reminding them that he had something special in mind for them and planned for them, he desired to draw them back by correcting the problem of hypocrisy, of compromise that was led from unfaithfulness and indifference. But the children of Israel didn't get it. Verse 13. And notice the hypocrisy in their actions. And the second thing you do. Now you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groanings, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. They knew that something was wrong between them and God. And so as they continued going through the motions, though their hearts weren't really in it. And I don't know why we believe that we can hide things from God. God sees everything. All things are open and naked to him. He knows what we're thinking. He knows our hearts. He knows everything that we've ever done. And they were weeping and crying over the fact, not that they have grieved God, but now that they were suffering the consequences of their actions, there was just remorse rather than repentance. They didn't have any desire to change. They wanted to continue doing what they were doing, but they wanted God's approval in doing so. And so they would come to the, the altar and they would sacrifice and they would pray and they would cry out to God and he would not accept it because they did not approach him in the, in the manner of repentance. They simply felt remorse. I mean, I think all of us as parents at one time or another realize that in our parental responsibility of chast uh, chastening and correcting our children, you can often tell when you catch your child doing something and they start crying profusely and you look at them and you just want to ask the question, all right, are you crying because you got caught or are you crying because you really feel bad and won't ever do it again? So one time I actually asked Autumn, I said, honey, are you crying because you got caught? Or are you crying because you really feel bad and you're never going to do it again? 
She goes, no, I'm crying because I got caught. I'll probably do it again tomorrow. At least she was honest. But that's remorse. And that was the hypocrisy. They knew what was wrong. They had God's word, and yet they continuously chose to disobey it, to be unfaithful to it. And as a result, they then went to God because now they were reaping the consequences of their actions. And they're reaping, but God's looking at their hearts saying, guys, you have no desire to repent, which means to change the course of your, of your actions, to cease what you are doing and go in a different direction and follow me. He knew that that was not their intent. And so he did not accept what they were offering to him. But in verse 14, notice this with me. And this leads to the fascinating reality of the unfaithfulness of the individuals. Remember that Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He was looking for the hearts of the people and they were unwilling to give their hearts to him. And he says to them in verse 14, now, but you say, why does he not? Why doesn't he accept our offerings? We're, we're doing it as he has asked us to do them. We are making the offerings. We are making the plea because it's all an issue of the heart, right? It's not an issue just of changed actions. They had no desire to cease that which they were doing. They wanted to continue in it. But yet, they felt that God was unfair for not accepting their offering. But you say, why not? Why has he not? Because, and the Lord tells them, the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You have divorced these Jewish women who had been faithful to you, who loved you, who were desiring to continue raising their children in the knowledge of God, and you decided to just abandon them. And a woman who got divorced in that culture by her husband, uh, without a dowry of some sort, they were pretty much left onto their own. And nine times out of ten, they did not have the means in which to support themselves. So it really was a divorce that led to an abandonment and often led to individuals, therefore, having to go home with the parents. If the parents were not living, they would then have to go onto the streets and become begging for their daily needs. And God saw this. And he says, you have left women who have been faithful to you. And again, this is just a symptom of a bigger problem. You've divorced them because you thought, you know, the grass was greener on the other side. You thought it was more expedient to divorce this Jewish woman who wasn't going to uh, financially better you as much as maybe this relationship with this family and this other nation. And you saw that, you know, if I marry them, then there's an inheritance and there's a wealth that I shall gain from this marriage. 
There's a business relationship that's to be had, and I can then therefore make a profit due to this new business relationship if I marry into that family. And God says, I have watched it all. I have seen it all. When my wife and I got married, I was fully aware of the fact that I wasn't simply stating to her and to all of those that were gathered there witnessing our ceremony, but I was making a commitment before God. And that God was watching the vows in which I made to my wife and expected me to fulfill those vows. In fact, we picked out a ring. It is three circles intertwined with each other. And it always reminds me, every time I play with it, which my wife gets uh, frustrated about, uh, every time I play with it, that it's always me, her, and the Lord, and we're inseparable. And as a result, I continuously remember that that day, 23 years ago, I made a commitment not only unto my wife, not only unto all of those who were witnessing, but most importantly to God. And God says, I witnessed that vow. As one who would witness and notarize a a document that was being written and legally binding two individuals to a contract agreement. But you, he says, you have been faithless. And though she has been the companion of of your youth or your wife by covenant... You have left her. Many scholars believe that the children of Israel became restless in their current situation of difficulty. And they got restless at home. And what was once a novelty and once was something that was very precious and and authentic to them, they no longer had a heart for, so they were looking for something better. Many today get divorced due to the fact that they're looking for something better. I'm not happy any longer. I'm not in love any longer. This person seems like they're so much fun. And I've been with him or her now for so many years, and it just seems, oh, it just seems hopeless, and I'm just not enjoying myself anymore. But that that one over there, they look, oh, they're so much fun. And the grass is greener on the other side. And as one very precious theologian said, that if, you're, if you feel that the grass is greener on the other side, maybe it's time you watered yours. And that's what they were doing. They had that kind of heart. But notice what happened here. In their unfaithfulness to the wife of their youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she has been your companion and wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one that God was seeking? And that is godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your wives of your youth. There is a supernatural thing that happens within a marriage. The Bible alludes to it constantly that the two become one. It's not only physically in the act of intimacy, but it's also spiritually. 
And this is where the difficulty comes when a Christian tries to hand, have a relationship with one who is not a believer or one who holds to a different religious faith. There is an intimacy that is lost. There is an intimacy that cannot be established. And though there is a spiritual union between the two, there's an intimacy that cannot be discovered due to the fact of their differences, especially between a believer and a non-believer, which, and by the way, I do not believe the Bible condones, and the Bible uh, says very clearly that we should not be unequally yoked with those who are not believers. And I believe that's referring to marriage. But there's something that happens. And as a result of this union spiritually, divorce is one of the messiest, cruelest, violent acts that can take place. Now, please, today in our nation, when we talk about a subject like divorce, we always want to jump immediately to the number of minimal exceptions or considerations. Let's talk about the whole first, the whole pie. Because today, many are getting divorced simply because of irreconcilable differences due to selfishness and pride, due to, uh, due to um, financial issues, etc. Due to the fact that they think that there's something better over there to be had. And God says, understand that marriage is something that I created. It is something very precious and valuable to me. And that's why God asks us to save ourselves for physical intimacy until we get married. Because that physical intimacy outside of marriage is that we are allowing a part of our being, a part of our identity, a part of our, 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 our spirit, a part of our lives to be uh, connected and interjected with someone else who isn't going to be with us forever. Don't cheapen yourself by allowing yourself to fall into sexual sin. You are violating some of the most deepest, earnest desires of God by doing so. I know that the moment may seem like, oh, what a temptation. Oh, the pleasure of it. Oh, the gratification of it. Stop. Hold on. Wait a minute. Understand what you are doing. You are venturing into an area that God has specifically designed for those who are married to enjoy in the covenant relationship of marriage because he knew that anything outside of that would be devastating. I was reading a, a little note from a Christian girl who at 13 years old experienced sex for the very first time with her boyfriend. And then shortly after that, the guy just dumped her and left her. And she was writing about how she felt and how empty she felt and how uh, abused she felt and how she, you know, gave in at that moment of temptation. And if she only would have held on and said no, she felt she lost a, whole, uh, a portion of herself in that act. And then she realized that the grace of God was there and that if she confessed her sin, that he would forgive her of her sin and cleanse her of all unrighteousness. And she said, though, even though that gracious forgiveness was there, I wish I never would have ventured into that place at all. 
And God says, don't you understand that a part of your spirit has been violated? This union that has been created between man and woman and God. And my desire was seeking godly offspring. Children that would continue to follow me. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Verse 15. And let none of you be faithless to the wives of your youth. Then he renders his standard, verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. We must talk about verse 16 for a moment because there is a debate on the manner in which this verse in the Hebrew should be translated. It is an honest debate. It is not a debate of malice or of watering down or unfaithfulness to the Scripture. In the Hebrew, the subject of the hatred or the one who hates is difficult to render. But after looking at it for several weeks, I do believe that the New translations, ESV and, the, and others, have it wrong. I believe that it should be rendered that God hates divorce. As he says in verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And the one who is guilty of violence, says the Lord who rules over all, pay attention to your conscience and do not be unfaithful. I do believe that God hates divorce. And this is one of the areas that I wish they would go back and revisit because when you look at it grammatically in the Hebrew, making the individual who hates the individual, the the husband, uh, is incorrect in the context of the entire passage. It is God who should be the one who is hating the action of divorce and it is rendered. And as a, as a reason for his hatred, he saw that divorce wreaked havoc within the society. God designed the society specifically to reflect his character. Everything that we have socially has been designed in conjunction with the character of God. Anything apart from that, therefore, distorts the character of God and also distorts the society. And let me ask you a question. Has the rampant cases or number of divorces here in the United States of America helped our society or hindered our society greatly? God knew that from beforehand. And he knew that the society would be weakened, that the relationship between the children and the parents would be devastated. And that children growing up without a father, uh, without a mother, would have great difficulties within their lives. And God says, I would have you spared from all of that. So I do believe it should be rendered that God hates divorce. Now, if you are here today and you have been divorced, does God hate you? And the answer is no. He's not directing his hatred towards you. He's directing it towards the act of divorce. Through Jesus Christ, forgiveness can be found. Through Jesus Christ, grace and mercy can be found and love can be found. There's always hope for those who have been divorced. 
But God said, I hate it because of what it does. And he uses a statement here that his garments are covered in violence. Very interesting. When I proposed to Dina and I said, honey, will you marry me? And if she said yes, she then would probably do something like this. Put the ring on the finger to make it official, right? In that culture, if one was to uh, be engaged to another, it wasn't a ring on the finger that would be given. It is simply one that would be covered with the garment of the gentleman. Her legs and her, uh, and her lap would be covered by his garment, such in the bo- as in the book of Ruth, when Ruth lay next to Boaz and Boaz covered her. That was the sign of engagement. And in that covering, it meant that he was going to protect her and provide for her and to shelter her and to love her and to care for her. But God says in the act of divorce, that garment becomes a garment of violence. What should be a garment of protection, what should be a garment of love, what should be a garment of security has now become a garment of violence. So for us today, let us be aware of the fact that our society is reaping the consequences of sin, the deeper sins of the human heart. We can deal with all the symptoms that we want, but until the human heart is dealt with through the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing is going to change. Nothing's going to change. Changing mere behavior is moralism. Changing the heart of an individual, that is Christianity. And so I leave you with some today. Throughout the Old Testament, God says, will you be faithful to me, Israel? And in that faithfulness, will you hold to my word and not compromise? In that faithfulness towards me, will you walk in integrity with me? And notice what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, when it comes to the issue of compromise. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, but, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our heart. Paul says, I'm not going to compromise those things that God has laid for me. And the psalmist writes, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. When it comes to hypocrisy, Titus writes, Paul, I should say, to Titus, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. John wrote in 1 John, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Or Paul writing in Romans, you then who teach others, Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you have you robbed temples? 
Do you boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. And that is so true. If we are going to state that we are Christians, let us walk as such. And if there are issues in our lives, ask the Lord to show you what those true issues are a symptom of and then allow him to show you the inner workings of your heart and therefore confess those sins, repent of those sins and turn to him. But when it comes to marriage today, let us know that God would not have us unequally yoked. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And when it comes to divorce, Jesus told us very clearly, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why? Because the image of marriage was stated as such. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, now love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, and it is profound. And I am saying that it is referring to Christ and to the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband.